0: Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank You for tonight. It's unique for us on a Thursday night to get to to gather together and consider Your Word. And we are reminded even in this text that we are slow when it comes to spiritual things. We are dull. So God, I, I pray that You would grant us um, the ability to see You in Your Word tonight and to contemplate all that You are and, and all that Christ has done for us. And give us grace that we might take these things in. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, tonight, uh, I want to use our time together to uh, reflect on what Jesus was thinking and feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before His death. It's a, it's a really interesting scene, uh, a lot of interesting things going on as, as we read about it. Jesus has, has just finished his final meal with the disciples that Nick was talking about, the, uh, instituting the Lord's Supper and giving them that command, uh, teaching them, washing their feet, spending that kind of last hour of intimacy with them. Really a sweet picture of both him being their leader and teacher, but also their friend you see their love for each other in that scene, especially if, as Jesus bends down to wash their feet and serve them uh, in a way that was clearly overwhelming to them. He explains uh, the nature of the cup, and it, <clears throat> it, it referring to a cup of blood and His, his flesh being torn. They enjoyed this fellowship, and, and now I'd say His hour has come. Uh, Jesus goes, goes to the garden, which is a familiar place, and he goes there to pray, and, and we'll read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, the record of, of what happened in the garden there. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Listen to it. It says Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing indeed, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And two things that really stick out uh, to me immediately in this text as being uniquely significant. Uh, there's a lot of things in here, a lot of things that I would love to spend a lot of time on, but I want to focus on two particular things. First is the disciples sleeping. And, and seeming to be oblivious to the magnitude of what's going on here. And, and the second thing is <clears throat> this, this stature or this, this attitude of Christ, that this level of anxiety and anguish that Jesus seems to be feeling here in the garden is overwhelming. But, but first I want to look at the disciples. What is going on here with the disciples? We ask those questions a lot as you read through the Gospels. Is this just another example of their inability to grasp all that's going on? I mean, they were just at dinner with Jesus, and he was telling them these things like, like this cup is a new covenant in my blood. <coughs> Clearly speaking of something very significant. He even says during dinner, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. I mean, did they miss? That statement, just kind of the the closing nature of that, the finality of it. Then they go to the Mount of Olives and Jesus tells them that they will all fall away from him. And these are incredible things for your master to be saying to you. That that he'll never drink this drink with you again until he's in his father's kingdom. That all of you as his fathers, you will all be unfaithful, you'll turn from me. He's not being secretive about what's happening, they, they are clearly at the end. And even if they don't know all the details of what is about to happen, they had to have had some idea that this wasn't just another Thursday night for them. Something significant is happening. And yet, they let their heavy eyes get the best of them. I think it's really interesting now that, that the tables have turned... In, in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, there's a, there's a familiar story of Jesus and the disciples setting out in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and, and a storm comes up. And uh, it's all, apparently a terrible storm, because the disciples think that they are going to die. And, and they run to Jesus, and He is asleep in the boat. They come to Him, and they say, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. But now we find the opposite. That Jesus is now the one in anguish, sweating, Trembling, describing Himself as sorrowful even to death. And the disciples are the ones that are asleep. When it comes to the physical storm, the disciples are very aware. They can see the waves crashing over the edges of the boat. They can feel the wind and rain. They have enough experience in the water to know that a storm like this could take their very lives. But they are sadly unaware of the magnitude of the current storm. They, like us, are dull to the spiritual realities around them. They are asleep. I think we we find ourselves asleep many times. All of us are dull at times when it comes to spiritual realities. It's an easy thing for us to become distracted by the physical world and forget that there is a more significant spiritual world around us. We quickly lose sight of the Eternal, when the temporary seems so pressing, I think about what Paul said when he said that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against these rulers and principalities of, of darkness. It's a much greater reality than we give it credit for. Well, this is a time for us to wake up, and I, I want to warn you that we are slow to do so. I, I, you can pass through this Easter week and, and give an occasional thought to Christ, but but I think this text would evidence that it's going to take more than that for us to wake up to spiritual realities. We're going to have to meditate on what Christ has done. This this Holy Week really is a gift to us in that it does provide us these unique opportunities to gather together like this to think and just contemplate what Christ has done for us. We must follow Jesus in this and listen to His words. It says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me encourage you to watch and pray. Ask God to open your eyes to these realities. But, but what, is, what is Jesus doing here? The disciples are clearly not the ones that we want to follow in this story. Jesus rebukes them, but Jesus is awake. Clearly, He understands what's going on, but, but it is still, I found, it, somewhat puzzling. That this man who slept through a storm only to be woken up so that he could speak to the wind and and rain and calm the storm. This man has has shown power over nature. He he fed 5,000 men with a small basket of food. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. This is a powerful man. And so, to find him in this state in the garden, being so overwhelmed, it says that he is sorrowful and troubled. He falls on his face and is crying out to God, "What is going on? What, what is causing Jesus all of this anxiety?" I mean, that that is a a really interesting thing to ponder. Look at his prayer in verse thirty-nine. <clears throat> It says, in going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not, not as I will, but as you will. He cries out to God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What does he mean here? What's the cup he's referring to? Is he asking to be released from his mission? I don't think he is. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup has been an expression used uh, to mean someone's portion. And more specifically, their, their portion that has been allotted to them by God. It would be this idea of a master doling out rewards to his servants or their allotted allowance. And we see familiar passages of it. We, we love the descriptions of blessing like in Psalm three five. It says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup David here just reflecting on the blessings of God, talking about the goodness of God and how God has overwhelmed him with blessing and how He has walked with him through troubles and He has set a table before him in the presence of his enemies. We love verses like that. We love to preach them. You love to hear them. It's It's fun to think about this God who can overwhelm us with good things and this portion of blessings. But what may be surprising is that more frequently in the Old Testament, this cup is used to refer to God's judgment, His wrath. Like in Psalm 75, a far less popular psalm, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine, mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Or in Isaiah 51, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. This is wonderful and awful imagery. This cup of God's wrath that must be consumed down to its very dregs that that makes people stagger. This foaming wine mixed with spices that's poured out on the wicked of the earth. To give a picture of God that, that we don't like to think about. That God is holy and just. And He must deal completely with the injustice and rebellion of this world. And He will do this by pouring out the cup of His great wrath down to its last drops the vengeance of an infinitely holy and powerful God must be exhausted. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the cup that Jesus is speaking of. This cup of wrath, judgment, and punishment. Jesus Christ, this One who has only known the cup of blessing that that, that has come from His obedience, now finds before Him a cup of overflowing with God's wrath, a wine mixed with spices and stirred together, of which He must drink down to the very dregs, a mixture of God's fierce opposition, disapproval, and righteous anger that has been stirred up by our guilt and shame. One commentator writes that the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking back from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. The horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has had up to this point a relationship with the Father that stretches into eternity past that has known nothing but peace, harmony, and mutual appreciation for one another. They've had a perfect relationship. Jesus has never tasted the disappointment of the Father. And now He stares at the prospect of drinking the entirety of a cup filled with all the disappointment that God has felt towards His adulterous people, you and me. For He would take on our shame, our unfaithfulness, our idolatrous hearts, our lust, our fear of man, our questioning of God's goodness, our pursuit of a hundred other things to find satisfaction rather than in God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. John Calvin, a theologian and reformer from the 1500s, wrote, He had no horror of death, therefore simply as a passage out of the world, but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God, and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because our sins, the load of which was laid upon him, pressed him down with their enormous weight. This is the source of his sorrow, even to death. This is why his soul is troubled. This is the cup that Jesus asks to be freed from, it includes his physical suffering, but is more significantly the judgment of God that will be poured upon him. Even in the asking to have the cup pass from him, Jesus never has in mind that the cup would then pass back to us, his followers. He expresses in Mark that he's only asking because he knows the Father is able to do anything. He's asking if there's another way to secure our forgiveness. We see that clearly in verse 42 when he goes back to pray a second time. He says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Jesus never intends to pass the cup on to us. He's merely pleading with the Father like any of us would do for deliverance in the time of His great trial. But we see His resolve over and over again when He repeats, Not my will, but Yours be done. He prays a third time and then he returns to meet his accusers. He's handed over to the crowd of sinners and his disciples abandon him. And so begins the hour for which he came. It would be a long night followed by a long day. I think it's uh, appropriate for us tonight to, to think about what role we have personally played in filling this cup. How have you been unfaithful to God, stirring up His wrath and judgment that required death? Consider for a moment the one who took the cup that was intended for you and drank it to its very dregs. Consider the one who exhausted the wrath of the living God so that you might stand before Him as sons and daughters. Tonight we're going to have a time of confession. It's going to be similar to the prayer times that we have on Sunday mornings. I'll begin us in prayer and then as you feel led, you can pray out loud and Jack will close us at the end. But I want to direct us specifically to prayers of confession as we consider our guilt and as we praise the one who took that guilt away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and that it has recorded in it this good news for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that it was your will to crush Him. Thank you that you made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. God, we confess to you that we are an adulterous people. We chase after many things. We are prone to wander. God, forgive us.